0: Well, this is our second in uh, exploration of the book of Exodus. Last uh, week we saw the childhood of Moses and we saw how the miraculous events around his birth and his rescue was God's way of saying, watch this child, I'm going to do something significant through him. But today's reading might make us say, Lord, why, why did you pick him? Moses' resistance to this call. A, a consistent theme through the Bible, as we've been seen, is not only that does God use the humble and otherwise insignificant people to bring about his purposes, he also uses people who are flawed and broken. In fact, it seems that he wants to highlight the flaws of those he uses, all of the great heroes of the Bible, except for one, the flawed and sinful. It's so that his grace and his perfection might be more clearly seen. That's what's going on this week in this passage. The baby that was born last week, that we read about last week, was marked out as the one that God would bring about this miraculous act of salvation, but he's grown up into what we might assess as being a bit of a failure. Moses was 40 years old when he decided to go out and to see what was happening to his people. You may recall from our journey through Genesis that when Jacob first came to Egypt, the Pharaoh of the time was intrigued because he'd never seen a man so old. That's because life expectancy in ancient Egypt was somewhere between 30 and 40 and maybe if you were wealthy and well off you were at the upper end of that spectrum. Moses is 40. He's effectively waited his whole life before going out to see what's happening with his people. Hebrews 11 tells us, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. But that's not describing Moses at this point in time. Moses is not choosing to be mistreated with his people. He's choosing to flee from suffering rather than to stay with his people. And so it would take another 40 years of self-imposed exile before he was willing to stand with them and suffer. It was 40 years before that specific call came to him through the burning bush. Now, why God used the bush, we don't know for sure. The, the word in Hebrew sounds similar to bush, so maybe there's a, a play on words there. Uh, sorry, sounds similar to Sinai. Uh, this word is probably better translated bramble. Uh, visually, it probably looks more like the the blackberries that we see. encompassing whole valleys in the hills than just a single little bush that we see depicted in, in artwork. We know that Moses was on Mount Sinai when it happened. God said, you will serve me on this mountain. Mount Horeb was just another name for Mount Sinai. What's happening here is Moses is experiencing a preview of what would happen when he eventually returned to the mountain with the whole community of Israel with him. At that time, it wouldn't just be a bush that was on fire. The whole mountain would be on fire. Now, 40 years is always significant in the Bible. It represents a generation. God kept Moses in Midian for 40 years so that when he returned to Egypt, it would be to a new generation, both a new Pharaoh and the new generation of Israelites. Now, Stephen, uh, in the book of Acts, when he preaches his sermon to the Sanhedrin, he also makes reference to the story of Moses. And uh, he uses this part of the story... To illustrate how the Israelites had always resisted the Holy Spirit. Uh, speaking here of Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And then at the c- conclusion of his sermon, he says, You stiff necked people, circum- uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So these two periods of 40 years were actually for the Israelites' benefit. After 40 years of being slaves, when they were presented with one who was willing to help them, they rejected him. So God took him away from them. And he gave them another 40 years of groaning under their slavery to bring them to the point where finally they cried for help. They had to come to the end of themselves over the course of two whole generations for them to see that unless God was the one who saved them, they wouldn't be saved at all. So finally, at the age of 80, Moses hears the call of God. And he gives five objections to obeying the call. Firstly, he says, Who am I? Surely I'm not the one for such a huge task of confronting the most powerful man in the world and telling him to allow me to lead an entire nation out of Egypt. Now, God's response to Moses, to that objection, I find uh, intriguing. Notice that he makes no reference to who Moses was. So Moses says, who am I? God doesn't say, I'll tell you who you are. He simply mentions the fact that he will be with him. Make no difference who Moses was. What would enable him to do what God commanded him would be God's presence with him. Also intriguing is the sign that he would give Moses. The sign to indicate that he was the one that he was sending to Pharaoh. He said, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the sign would be given not before, but after they've come out of Egypt. That meant Moses ultimately was required to walk by faith not by sight. He had to obey God in hope that God would be faithful to his promise and would bring him back to this mountain as he promised. Now this word uh, serve can equally be translated worship. To serve God is to worship him. To worship God is to serve him. And it's a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the actions of the the Levitical priests as they served in the tabernacle and the temple. God's God's saying to Moses here, your role when you come back to this mountain will be as a priest, like a priest serving in the temple. It will be there at this mountain that God would give Israel the law through Moses. Moses. Through Moses, he would enter into a covenant with his people. So again, the sign that God gives Moses is actually not about Moses. It's about what God will do through him. His second objection is, who are you? How am I supposed to say that you sent me if I don't even know your name? In the ancient world, including Egypt, all the gods had their names and to know a god's true name, they thought, would give them special spiritual power. They could even, in a sense, have power over that god to make that god give them what they wanted simply by invoking that god's name. That's why Moses expects that the people will say, What is his name? That's how they would have been used to operating in the the culture and the religious climate of Egypt where every god must have a name. Now, God's response is to give Moses a name that wasn't really a name. I am who I am. The, The name Yahweh, which is translated in most English Bibles as the Lord, Whenever you see the Lord in small capitals, that indicates it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's simply a, a shortened version of this phrase I am who I am. God's saying, when they ask my name, use this name that tells them that they can't control me, they can't put me in a box, they can't compare me to anything in creation, they can't define me even by mere human language because I am the one true God above all of the other so-called gods. God is the one who created the reality that even gives us the possibility of inventing other gods. Now, I am who I am can also be translated, I will be who I will be, or even I will do what I will do. And this uh, comes out in the following verses where the Lord makes it clear that he will be made known to Israel through his mighty works. The fact that he's observed their suffering. The fact that he'll bring them out of their affliction and into the promised land. The fact that he will stretch out his hand in judgment upon Egypt. And the fact that the Israelites will take all the treasures of Egypt with them as they go. Thirdly, he says, but they won't believe me. The they here is actually the Egyptians. Moses will be going before Pharaoh to defy him, to defy all of the gods of Egypt in the name of Yahweh, I am who I am. This would be a claim that the, the God of Moses, the God of the Israelites has greater authority than the gods of the Egyptians. And the signs that God will give Moses, they're not mere signs of or displays of supernatural ability. They're actually pre signs of judgment. A stick turned into a snake, presumably a, a venomous snake. A healthy hand turned leprous. Fresh water turned to blood. They're all warnings of judgment that will come upon Egypt if they don't hear, if they don't obey the word of the Lord. Then he says, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. At this point, I think Moses is getting desperate. God is just counteracting all of his objections. And so he says something here that's not actually true. And he should have known that God knows that it's not actually true. Stephen said in his uh, sermon... In Acts, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now the world might tell us here that Moses' problem was a problem of low self-esteem. He needed to believe in himself and in his abilities. But the problem isn't low self-esteem, the problem is disobedience. We know that Moses believed in his ability because he'd already stepped up in the past to defend his fellow Hebrews and tried to settle that dispute between the two of them. God's response is to assure him that his ability or inability isn't actually the issue. What would enable Moses to speak wasn't actually his own skills, whether he had them or not, but the fact that God made his mouth and that God would be with his mouth. Finally, uh, Moses, he's run out of clever arguments and he just says, send someone else. Literally, uh, Lord, send whom you will send. I think Moses here is reasoning that if God is able to be with him, if God is able to make him speak, if God is able to give him miraculous signs and make him known, make God known in accomplishing the task, then well, why does it have to be Moses? God could use anyone if it actually doesn't come down to Moses' own ability. And then along comes Aaron and uh, it might seem on the face of it that here the Lord is conceding to Moses. He's giving in to his objections and this last objection please send someone else. But notice two things. Firstly, Aaron was already on his way at this point point. and secondly, his coming was actually, that was the outworking of God's anger against Moses' objection. Moses and Aaron would go together. So Moses still isn't exempted. However, he wouldn't have the honour of doing it on his own. Israel's deliverer would always be before them now as someone who is inadequate, someone who needs help, help from Aaron. Aaron. Aaron is glad, or he's told, Aaron will be glad to see you. And I think the gladness of Aaron is, it's a positive reception of Moses' call from God and the call to deliver Israel. And Aaron's gladness is a rebuke to Moses. Moses had seen, he'd seen the burning bush, he'd heard the voice of the Lord, he'd seen, but he hadn't believed. Aaron hadn't seen, but he believed. Now I said last week that as we explore Exodus, we'll see how it clearly points us to Jesus, the new and better Moses. And this passage does it in a number of ways. Uh, Maybe the story of Moses has been used so often to, uh, to speak to... Uh, our need to answer God's call or our need to not be fearful about speaking out, that uh, maybe we struggle to see, well, where's Jesus in all of this because so often it's applied directly to us. Well, this passage points us to Jesus in at least six ways. One by similarity and five by contrast. Firstly, the initial response of the Israelites to Moses, as we've seen. And in that we see an echo of the coming of Jesus. As we saw, Moses' action of defending the slave was supposed to make them see that God would bring salvation by his hand, yet they rejected him. And this should make us think of Jesus. He came to his own... And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Aaron's faith, as we saw, was a rebuke to Moses, but it was also a rebuke to the Israelites. Those Israelites who were the first recipients and the first readers of this book And this initial unbelief of the Israelites who rejected Moses was a rebuke and it was a call to the Israelites as they heard this story. The message to every reader of Exodus was, don't be like those Hebrews. The message to us from John's Gospel is, don't be like those to whom Jesus first came. Instead, hear the call. Hear that all who receive him, all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Two days ago I had a phone call from a number I didn't recognise and it was a man who, he said he just asked his phone to... Put him in contact with a Christian church near where he lived, and thanks to Google or Siri or whoever did it, it called me. He called himself an agnostic, and he'd been having a conversation with a Christian friend of his, and this friend had summed up God as the Creator. This man thought surely a Christian should have more to say about God than just the Creator, so. He wanted to get someone else's opinion. What I told him and what I kept coming back to throughout our 48-minute conversation was that if he wanted to know who God is, he needs to look at Jesus. Now, he continually avoided talking about Jesus. He preferred to keep going back to talk about philosophical ideas of God and the idea of God. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To receive Jesus is to receive the one who sent him, the Father, as well as to receive the one whom Jesus sends, the Holy Spirit. To reject Jesus is to reject God. So when the Jews refused to receive Jesus, they were rejecting Yahweh, the Lord, the very God who had taken their ancestors out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, the God who had been with them ever since. So let us not be like those Israelites. Instead, let us be like Aaron, who received with gladness the good news of deliverance. Secondly, For each of Moses' five objections we see in Jesus a corresponding willingness to answer the call of the Father. Moses objected firstly, who am I? To which God responded by promising the sign that he would worship him on this mountain. And ignore that, because that's completely the wrong verse. It should be 1 verse 11, not 11 verse 1. Who am I? Jesus never questioned his identity. He never said, why should I be the one who's sent as the saviour of the world? From eternity, as the son, he knew the affirming Love of the Father. He always knew himself to be the Son of the Father's love. And then at his baptism, he heard the Father's words, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And these words at his baptism are more than just the Father's affirmation of his love for the Son. These are words that are spoken at a coronation, they are a commissioning. The one who is called. Son of God, is the heir to the throne. The one who is endowed with the king's authority to do the work of the king. And the words, with you I'm well pleased, meant that this one is fully qualified to carry out this task. So for Jesus to hear these words would have meant I am sending you to bring my people out of their bondage of slavery to sin and death and the devil. The sign of Moses' calling was that he would serve God on the mountain. Well, Jesus willingly served God on a mountain. Not Mount Sinai, Mount Golgotha. On that mountain we see the ultimate expression of worship. The man Jesus, our representative, presented his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He laid down his life for us and our sin. Moses objected. Well, who are you? And God responded, God revealing his name that isn't really a name, I am who I am. Well, Jesus never questioned the identity of God. To the contrary, in Jesus we have the clearest revelation of God, surpassing all revelation that came before. He is the Word who was God and was with God. He was made flesh. As we've just heard, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. More than that, when Jesus was talking with the Jews about his claim to be the Son of God, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Their immediate response was to pick up stones to throw at him because... Not only had he uttered God's name, I am, that was forbidden in their traditions, but he was claiming to be the I am who I am. He's claiming to be the same God who appeared to Moses and saved Israel. So Jesus was clear. He was sent by the Father. And we know the Father not just because of what Jesus tells us about him, but because of his mighty works that the Father does through him in salvation. When we hear Jesus' words at the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we can know for sure that this is the God who sees and the God who knows our plight. This is the God who has stretched out his hand like he did in Egypt, to give us a saviour, to give us a saviour who is fully committed to fulfilling the commission. This is the God who has a name that's not really a name, but who now welcomes us to draw near and call him Father. Moses objected, they won't believe me, to which God responded by giving him those miraculous signs of coming judgment. Jesus said quite plainly, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jesus obviously gave many miraculous signs, too many for the Gospel writers to record, and they all very clearly pointed to his identity as the Messiah. But Jesus' signs were not signs of judgement, snakes, leprosy, blood. They were signs of the age to come, in which there will be no more sickness or sorrow or death or danger. Jesus' miracles were signs of healing and cleansing and forgiving, of calming the storm, of feeding the hungry, of raising the dead. But still the people didn't believe and it would only be when they saw this sign of Jonah, the cross and the resurrection that some would believe. Now the sign of Jonah was a sign of judgement. Not of judgment to come, but of judgment completed. Judgment that had come upon him because of our own sin and unbelief. So, to us who by nature cannot and will not believe, this is the sign, the cure for our unbelief. Look to the crucified, risen Jesus, and that will be sufficient. For you to know that He is the only Saviour. Moses objected, I'm not eloquent, to which God responded by promising to be with His mouth. Well, Jesus never questioned His ability or inability to speak. He knew that all that He had to say already was not of Himself, it was the Father's words given to him. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You see the correspondence here between words and works. Jesus is saying that as he speaks, the Father is powerfully working. This has nothing to do with eloquence, nothing to do with public speaking skills. It's a confidence that the word of God is living and active. God is so true to his word that when he speaks, it's done. No wonder uh, preachers like this part of Exodus because it saves us from the tyranny of thinking that somehow Our skills or our lack of skills is somehow going to build up a church or tear down a church. It's the word of God that builds up or tears down. But this passage isn't primarily here to help preachers. It's to highlight, again, the weakness of Moses so that we will look to another one who has the clear, unmistakable words of God because he is the Word of God. Finally, Moses objected, Lord, please send someone else, to which God responded in anger and brought along Aaron. What did Jesus say when he first heard the call of the Father? His response was, in effect, here I am. Send me. The writer of Hebrews Uh, uses these words, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. There could be no other. No one else was qualified to be the Saviour, let alone come alongside the Saviour and help him out, like Aaron did with Moses. For him, it was unquestioning, joyful obedience, knowing the joys that were set before him. Those joys of doing his father's will enabled him then to endure the shame of the cross. So as I said at the start, the writer of Exodus seems to labour the point of Moses' weaknesses and failures and unwillingness to obey. And this is intentional, this is deliberate in God's purposes because the Israelites who were called to follow and obey Moses, they weren't called ever to copy Moses or follow his example. They were supposed to look beyond him, beyond this weak deliverer, to the perfect deliverer who was to come. Moses' ministry, while it was great, was never meant to be perfect. It was always supposed to be imperfect and incomplete and temporary. God brought salvation to his people despite Moses. But he has brought salvation to us because of Jesus' perfection. The writer of Hebrews says he is able to save Completely, all who come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Moses and that he points us not only to our own weakness and frailty and sin and disobedience, but even better, he points us to Jesus, the perfect, willing, obedient, humble and joyful Saviour. We thank you that your son came willingly, that he obeyed your call, that he laid down his life for us on the mountain of Golgotha and that all who come to him will never be put to shame. We pray in his name.